Yeah, so today we're, we're going to talk about joy. And uh, I know it's like we, we've just heard the, the Wittig story and just all the, the stuff they've been through. And, and we're all experiencing the chaos that's going on in the world. And it can be really tough to be like, really find joy during this time. But it's so important. Joy is so important, especially in the middle of the storm. As I was preparing this message, I had a realization about myself that sometimes I'm really bad at not celebrating. I'm really bad at not looking at wins. I'm always looking at deficiencies, you know, things that need to be fixed. Um, and sometimes I have trouble just stepping back and celebrating wins in my life, wins in the church, win, you know, just wins. And I know that as your pastor, I'm confessing to you, I'm sorry, uh, for not celebrating. Because um, God is good, and God's done a lot of great things. But I've always had kind of in myself kind of a restless spirit. You know, always like, what's the next thing? What do we need to do? And so this year, I, I, I made a deliberate change. Um, this year, I, my, our staff team is, is Taylor and Jesse, and I got them really unique Christmas gifts this year. Uh, <laughs> I got them both the same Christmas gift. It's a big, bright blue mug. That it, it, if you watch the show The Office, they have the party planning committee. Um, these are the party planning committee mugs. And that was, it's supposed to be prophetic because we want to be a church that parties more this year. All right? We want to celebrate. We want to celebrate the good things that God is doing and who Jesus is. And so I got them these mugs as sort of this token like, hey, your job this year is to plan some parties. And this week we had a big win because we were able to book Silver Lake Park. And I'm just telling you right now. August 19th and 21st, we're doing our first all-church camp, all right? So I want everybody there, August 19th through 21st, all-church uh, camp. It's going to be a lot of fun. You know, s'mores, how can you not go wrong with s'mores? And just time together. So we're looking for those times to celebrate. We've been, like, planning those things. And I just thought I'd bring that up because today we're talking about joy and how important joy is to our faith. And here's the truth that we're going to look at today from Mark 2, is that Jesus alone is enough reason to celebrate. Jesus alone is enough reason to celebrate. We'll see in Mark 2 that Jesus' presence always brought joy to those he was around, that believed in him, that really believed and were open to him. Jesus' presence brought joy. Now, Jesus' presence didn't bring joy to those who felt threatened by him. We see this over and over again with, with uh, the religious and self-righteous types. They weren't able to experience joy with Jesus because they weren't open to him. But for those who were seeking for him and looking for him and found him, their hearts were filled with delight. And we're going to see that today in these two stories. I think if we as a church, if the more we pursue the presence of Jesus, the more joy we will experience. And I want our church to be a place where joy is bursting forth. I think our world needs that right now. We live in a really kind of a dark time. Um, just if you, all the things that have gone on, we've just lived through a pandemic, there's a war in Ukraine, there, there's so much devastation in our world today, but yet God continues to call his people not to panic, but to choose joy. We need to choose joy over panic, and Jesus can bring joy even in the middle of crisis. 
This week I read an article from Christianity Today that talked about a Ukrainian couple who chose to celebrate their wedding even as bombs were going off in their city. This is what it said. It said, Andrei and Nadia, displaced from Kiev by the Russian missile barrage on Thursday, exchanged wedding vows amid great celebration. Scheduled to be married this weekend in the capital, the couple was instead sent fleeing to Nadia's home church 185 miles southeast on the Dnieper River with a request for an impromptu wedding. In the middle of a war? That doesn't make sense, said Benjamin Morrison with irony. But during war is when it makes the most sense. What better reminder that even war cannot stamp out love? And what better way to say that we serve a higher king than to rejoice in the midst of chaos? That's powerful. We've all seen what's going on over there. And and here we have Ukrainian Christians choosing to celebrate and choose joy even in the middle of chaos. My challenge to our church today is in the middle of our chaos are people seeing joy. When people look at us, when people look at the church, are they seeing joy? Are they seeing joy? I think sometimes, I hope they're seeing joy. Um, But I think often, a lot of people, when they think of the church today, they see people who are just as scared, just as angry, and just as frustrated as everybody else. And yet, we're supposed to be people marked by joy. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. One of the, that means one of the, the byproducts of being close to God is an experience of joy. And so my challenge to us today is what if we need to rediscover the joy that Jesus brings? And that's what we're going to pay attention to in Mark 2 today. Because in the middle of this chapter, we see Jesus bring joy on two different occasions— And in both stories, it's the religious types who are questioning the joy that people are experiencing or questioning Jesus during this time. And so the first story we're going to get to today is found in Mark 2, verse 13. If you have your Bibles, or it will be on the screen. And it says this. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard, he said to them, Those who have no need of a physician but sick, he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we're going to stop here at this story. This first story is important because it shows Jesus hanging out with some shady people and bringing them joy and getting under the skin of religious people. See, when Je- before this, when Jesus first called his disciples, he called fishermen, which was unexpected, surprising, but not scandalous. Calling a tax collector to be your disciple in that day and age would have been scandalous because tax collectors kind of were like mafia-type guys. Uh, they worked for the government. We don't know if Levi, also called Matthew, we don't know if he worked 
for uh, King Herod or if he worked for the Roman government, either way, he was a sellout and hated by his people. He would have been considered, uh, he would have been considered a rich sellout trader by his people. And so he's the guy that Jesus chooses to be his disciple. He's the guy, totally unworthy to be, to, to be close to Jesus. He's the guy that Jesus chooses, and Jesus calls him, and he steps out of his tax booth and follows Jesus. So Levi gets to trade being shunned by his society, his family, his city, to finding acceptance in Jesus. And he, he's willing to leave his tax booth, which meant leaving behind all that money that he had sold his soul for, leaving behind all that money uh, to find joy in Jesus. He realized there was a joy problem in his life, that all the money in the world wasn't going to bring him joy, and then Jesus enters the scene. And what do we see? It results in celebration. Levi wasn't completely unaccepted. He had friends in low places. He had other friends, other mafia friends, um, who we hear in the text described as tax collectors and sinners. And he throws a party. It says, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So they describe uh, Levi's crew as, disciple, well, they, as tax collectors and sinners. So you've got Jesus and his disciples having fun with tax collectors and sinners. And sinners is just sort of this umbrella term. It would be what the religious elite would like call heathens, basically, those heathens. And they're reclining at the table. And I got to tell you, the, the Middle Eastern meal is very different than the way we eat. Like we eat and it's pretty, you know, everybody's sitting in a chair and we've got utensils and it, and it can be pretty formal. It, when you're eating with someone in the Middle East, it's, it's a little different. You're, you're, you're literally kind of laying on a, a leather, you know, leather pad on the floor. The table's about a foot high. You, you kind of feel like a king, you know, you're just kind of laying there and then you don't have individual plates. All the dishes are sort of like, like everybody just grabs grabs the chicken out of the same dish you know and this isn't like a nice little veggie tray this is like this is like casserole you know just diving in with people you know that's the way they did it that's the way they did it and that's how jesus ate with these guys he shared food he really broke bread he put his hand in the dish with these tax collectors and sinners and so for those who were like more religious and more more thinking like the, us and them, uh, they didn't share food like that. The, the, the holy people did not mix with heathens, definitely not putting their hand in the dish with the same people. And so how could Jesus, who, you know, it, it teaches like no one else and heals and, and forgives sins, how could he do that with, with these people? Why? So they ask his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus has... His, his, uh, his line, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here's the point that we get from this story. Jesus befriends broken people in order to heal them. That's Jesus's business. That's like, that's what he does. That's his mission. Jesus befriends 
broken people in order to heal them. That's what he's about. That's what he trained his disciples to be about. Befriending broken people. That is the business of Jesus. If somebody asked you, what is Jesus about? You could tell them with confidence that Jesus is about coming alongside broken people and healing them and restoring them. He reclines with them. He listens to them. He gives them his full attention. He's the living example of what it says in Psalm 34, 18. It says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus, it didn't say Jesus is close to those who have it all figured out. It says Jesus is close to the brokenhearted, to the crushed in spirit, to those people who don't have many options left, to those people who have destroyed all the positive relationships in their lives, to those who are in the kind of like the end of their rope and have nowhere else to turn, Jesus chooses to come near to those people. He saves the broken. And that word saves there literally means he helps them, he accepts them, and he brings victory to those people. This week, as, as I was preparing for this message, um, Bonnie and I heard from one of her family members that we hadn't heard of from a long time. And uh, all I know is he's had a, a really rough life. And I, I'm not here to share details, but this week we got a specific message from his sister asking us, we hadn't heard from her for a while either, asking us about, hey, do you know much about this Bible translation? And I was like, no. Uh, I mean, I, I said, yes, I do, but, but why do you ask? And um, her, uh, Bonnie's cousin, and she told me that Bonnie's cousin was in, in jail, but as he's in jail for, for some bad choices he made, he started reading his Bible and studying his Bible, and she said he's becoming like the brother I always knew he could be. And it's just a reminder that, man, God transforms lives. Just by spending time in Jesus' presence, in Jesus' word, it transforms lives. And all of a sudden, we have a window into his life that we did not have before because Jesus changes lives. He heals brokenness. He brings joy back into, life, in, into all of our lives. And this is the gospel that we must embrace. The problem that we see in Scripture is that, is that not everyone is willing to embrace that joy because they've invested too much in how they look, their behavior, what they've done. They're not open to knowing the person of Jesus or, or learning from him. See, the teachers of the law thought that their knowledge and good behavior, that it equaled righteousness in their minds, they weren't broken. They had, they had kept it together. They had put countless hours in to study all of God's word and the laws and, and, and the Talmud and all these different things. They had spent thousands of hours. So, of course, they were good. The result of that should be A plus B equals C, uh, that they were good. You know, and, and they were staying away from all these things that, the, that the, the, the sinners were indulging in. They weren't robbing people. They weren't eating unclean foods. They weren't drinking. They weren't getting drunk. They were on their best behavior, yet Jesus did not bring them joy. Did not bring them joy. He only brought them confusion. And we see again in this next passage, we see again that Jesus brings joy to, to broken people, and he alienates the self-righteous. 
Let's go to, uh, let's go to verse 18. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came, to, came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So here we have a question about fasting. Um, and it comes from some people. That's really specific. It's just inquiring minds want to know, why don't Jesus' disciples fast? We see John the Baptist's disciples fast. We see the Pharisees fast. So why aren't Jesus' disciples fasting? And so fasting is a sign of grief, you should know. It's a sign of, it's basically weakening yourself to cry out to God. And so most of the time that happens by withholding from food. And the, 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 uh, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they had a scheduled time of fasting every week, 12 hours they went without food. And sometimes they would make that a really big deal. Uh, they'd make it really obvious to everybody else. They'd whiten their faces uh, to let people know I'm really suffering, not eating these 12 hours. Um, I feel that. Uh, uh, but fasting is a deliberate choice to make yourself weaker, and it's a sign of mourning. There's a lot of brokenness in the world. Like, if we were going to fast today, we'd fast for the crisis in Ukraine. We'd fast for the people who are losing everything. We, would call a, we could call a fast, and we, and, we could, uh, and we could grieve and cry out to God, and that, and that would be a good thing. That would be a good thing. But why not Jesus' disciples? Why not Jesus' disciples at this time? And there's always a question behind the question. There's always questions behind the question. It, it is about fasting, but it is about a little bit more uh, than fasting. Basically, they're asking, like, hey, Jesus, are your disciples not as spiritual as these other guys who are trying harder? <laughs> um, hey, Jesus, do you not care about, like, spiritual discipline? And I think the biggest question that they're asking is why are you celebrating while all of the rest of the world is grieving? Why are you celebrating when all of the rest of humanity is grieving? You know, and at that time, there was an oppressive Roman government. There was an oppressive uh, government under King Herod. There was all of these reasons to grieve. Just like today, there's a hundred different reasons, thousands of reasons to be grieving. And yet we're called to be filled with joy. We're called to celebrate. And so how does Jesus respond when he's posed with this question? Why are his disciples choosing to feast and to laugh and to celebrate? And he basically gives them three questions. First question, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Should you put a new cloth on an old shirt? And then should you put new wine into old wineskins? And that one we don't really get as, as much because we, 
you know, we don't use skin to put, <laughs> so animal skins to put wine in, like a canteen. We don't really do that anymore. Um, but basically, if you were going to make wine at that time, you would put new wine, unfermented wine, into an animal skin that, that was new, so it would have some elasticity. You couldn't reuse the skins. If you reused the skins, it would have hardened, and it would burst the skins. And so that was sort of that idea. And the whole point is that we're celebrating because something new has happened. Something new has happened in Jesus. Jesus is actually the tonic, the answer to the brokenness in the world. Something new is happening. He, Jesus has come, the king is here, and he's going to fix this broken world. He's going to fix this broken world. And all of the Bible to this point pointed to this day when the king would arrive, when the king would be here. All of the sacrifices that, that, that emphasized the sin of people. People had to see the weight of their sin as they, they watched animals be slaughtered and blood poured out. Generation after generation, it pointed to Jesus, the arrival of the king. And even those sacrifices, they couldn't pay sin. It was only like paying interest on debt. It was only looking forward to one day when that debt would be paid. But now the king is here and we can celebrate. And this is all about God coming close to us. And that's what we can celebrate, that God has come close to us. It's not anything that we did. It's nothing we earned. He's just decided, because he's good, to come close to us. And Jesus is that. When Jesus came, everything changed in the relationship between man and God. There's a huge difference between the way God interacts with his people in the Old Testament to now. People had to live with the full weight of their sin. They were separated from the Holy Spirit for the most part. And the law kind of acted as guardrails to kind of get them through that period of time. But with Jesus, God has come close to us. Jesus is God, Emmanuel, God with us. And then when, when Jesus ascends to heaven, he says, don't worry, the Comforter is coming, the Holy Spirit. Uh, it'll be better for you if I go because it's not just God with us, it's God in us with the Holy Spirit. That's the age that we live in now. And then one day it will be complete. And I just want to read, as we see the progression in Scripture, this is God progressively getting more and more uh, close to us. Revelation 21, uh, verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Basically, one day our unity with God will be living in the presence of God. Our faith will be sight. We will see God. And that will be the, the complete state. But Jesus is where it all starts. Jesus is God with us. And so here's the reason why we can celebrate no matter what, is that the presence of God provides an abundance of joy. 
The presence of God provides an abundance of joy. And no matter what you're going through, no matter how stressful your life has been, no matter how much how, how worried you are over the state of things in the world, we can always find joy because God is near. God is near. God is with us, and that should always provide us joy, even that doesn't make sense. Even when the bombs are dropping, we can still celebrate. And that speaks volumes to the world. The king was there, and he was making things new. It wasn't about acting spiritual. It was about receiving the new life that he was willing to give. And think about this. When you move into a new phase of life, don't you celebrate? Right? Birthdays, graduations, weddings, you know, um, retirement, all those things. It's like, man, I'm celebrating that something has been completed and I have something to look forward to. We celebrate when things are made new. It's moments to celebrate. It's the same with Jesus. That's why they're not fasting. That's why they're celebrating, because Jesus was there, and he was making life new. And so I want to ask you, you individually, are you experiencing the joy of the Lord in your everyday life, in your everyday walk with Jesus? Are you experiencing joy? I'm not saying that your Christian life has to be a nonstop thrill ride, <laughs> right? I'm not saying that you'll never be sad. I'm not saying that if somebody gives you bad news, you start hooting and hollering, right? That's not what we're talking about at all. But are you experiencing the joy of the Lord in your life? Is he filling your heart? I was thinking about that in terms of where are the places that you go where you just experience worship? where you just want to worship. I know for me, I, I, run, I try to run like three days a week. Usually it's like one or two. So I try to run. But I, from my house, I run down to the, the, I usually leave at 5.30 a.m. or 6 in the morning, and I run down to the Blaine Pier. And if you're ever there during sunrise, especially on a clear day, like it's beautiful. I mean, you've got the, the sound on one side, you've got the mountains behind you, right? And you guys all, you know this if you... If you know, I'm a little newer to Blaine, so let me indulge in how beautiful Blaine is. But it, it's beautiful, and, and, and when I go there, I can't help but worship. Like, my prayers are generally like worship when I'm there, just praising God, seeing, being reminded of His work in the world, the beauty of His creation, the love at which He's shown my family and our church. I can't help but worship. And that's where joy comes from worship. That's where joy comes from, when we are able to, to worship the Lord with our full heart, right? When nothing stands in the way between us and God. So I would, I would challenge you, if you don't have that place where you truly worship, find that place. Make that time to worship. That will change everything else in your life. You know, when we get up in the morning, we have a choice of who we're going to worship that day. Right, who we're going to serve that day. And it could be as simple as what you choose to listen to in the morning, right? or what you choose to think about, or if you spend time praying or, or, or dwelling on God or asking, hey God, how do you want to use my day today? When you wake up in the morning, we all have a choice if we're going to worship or not. 
And so I want to encourage you, choose worship. Choose, choose to praise Jesus, the God who befriends and saves all of us. Because here's the hint. There's not a, a small pool of us that are broken. We're all broken. And we're all fractured. And we all struggle. And we all have things that we need God's help in to overcome. And so choose worship. And so what I want to encourage you, if, if, if you are having trouble getting to that point where you're experiencing joy, I just have two ideas for you as we close. In order to experience the joy only Jesus can give, we must move from performance to presence, and we must move from routine to relationship. Jesus is real. We're, we're, we're talking about a personal God. Uh, it's, it's, he hasn't just set up a, a, a marker for us to hit. Like, he walks with us. He wants to be with us, talk with us, dwell with us. And so we need to move from thinking about all of the, of, of the performance, like what I, I need to do to, to feel good, to just worshiping the one who is good. Worship the one who is good. And we all can have a religious spirit at times. And what I mean is, sometimes we can pursue God or pursue religion or pursue faith um, for, for religious reasons, like family stability, good health, uh, community. And those things are, are good, but if we try to do that without really pursuing the king, we're missing it. Because this is all about, all that goodness flows out of a relationship with the king. It's a fruit of the spirit, right? So it's the fruits of walking with Jesus, being close to God. That's when you start to see good things just come out of your life. But if we're trying to do all those things on our own, we're going to get tired really fast. And that was one of the problems with um, with, with those Pharisees at that time. God's not impressed with what we can do. He's impressed with what he can do when we're open to him, right? What he can do through us. And so remember that joy comes out of that, of, 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 of our posture of worship. God wants us to draw near to him, to just draw near, to spend time in his presence. And it's our choice if we're going to do that. And it's not about routine. It's easy to make our faith a routine. You know, church on Sunday, uh, small group, read the Bible. And, and we actually, like, it's good to have rhythms. Um, but God should never be routine and predictable, right? A relationship isn't predictable. Um, it's con uh, consistently surprising and life-giving. But we need to live a life of worship to get there. I'm going to invite Tyler to come and lead us in, uh, in speaking of worship. Tyler, to come and lead us in worship this morning. Um, and let's, uh, let's pray. Jesus, we, I, I thank you for everyone gathered here this morning uh, on this earlier morning than usual um, to talk about joy and joy in the middle of the storm and joy in the middle of chaos and and singing when everything is, is, seems to be falling apart. Lord, that joy is a sign of trust in a big God. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would, again, reveal your heart to us, Lord, if, uh, that, that show us how big you are. Show us that, that, uh, how much you love us and, and, and reveal to us the things in our life that we're holding on to that's preventing us from, from fully trusting you and fully experiencing that joy. God, we want to be a community that could be described as joyful. Lord, we want, we want the, the Spirit to be pouring out of us, God. And, and Lord, for joy to just abound in our lives. Lord, you haven't called us to drudgery. You haven't called us to, to um, just blind faith and obedience. You've called us to an active relationship filled with joy, of, filled with the joy of knowing you. So, Lord, I pray we experience that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.